In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Queen of heaven, rejoice. Alleluia. For he whom you did merit to bear. Alleluia. Has risen as he said. Alleluia. Pray for us to God. Alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary. Alleluia. For the Lord has truly risen. Alleluia. The following is a reading from Father Alvin Butler's Lives of the Saints. April 21st, St. Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury, Confessor. If the Norman conqueror stripped the English nation of its liberty and many temporal advantages, it must be owned that by their valor they raised the reputation of its arms and deprived their own country of its greatest men, both in church and state, with whom they adorned this kingdom, of which this great doctor and his master, Lanfranc, are instances. St. Anselm was born of noble parents at Aust in Piedmont about the year 1033. His pious mother took care to give him an early tincture of piety, and the impressions her instructions made upon him were as lasting as his life. At the age of fifteen, desirous of serving God in the monastic state, he petitioned an abbot to admit him into his house, but was refused out of apprehension of his father's displeasure. Neglecting during the course of his studies to cultivate the divine seed in his heart, he lost this inclination and, his mother being dead, he fell into tepidity, and without being sensible of the fatal tendency of vanity and pleasure, began to walk in the broad way of the world, so dangerous a thing is it to neglect the inspirations of grace. The saint in his genuine meditations expresses the deepest sentiments of compunction for these disorders, which his perfect spirit of penance exceedingly exaggerated to him, and which, like another David, he never ceased most bitterly to be well to the end of his days. The ill usage he met with from his father induced him, after his mother's death, to leave his own country, where he had made a successful beginning in his studies, and after indulgent application to them for three years in Burgundy, then a distinct government, and in France, invited by the great fame of Lanfranc, prior of Beck, in Normandy under the abbot Herluin, he went thither and became his scholar. The venerable abbot Herluin, after having commanded in the armies with great valor and reputation, renounced the world, founded this abbey upon his own manor of Beck about the year 1040, and was chosen the first abbot. Mabillon has given us his edifying life, but could not find sufficient proof that he was ever honored in the church as a saint. In the calendar of Beck, his festival is marked of a double of the first class on the 26th of August, but the Mass is sung in honor of the Blessed Trinity. Among the records of this house, there are two lives of its founder. To one of them is annexed a modern dissertation in which the anonymous author pretends to prove that Herluin was honored among the saints, and that a chapel in that monastery, which is now destroyed, was dedicated to God under his invocation. On his father's death, Anselm advised with him about the state of life he was to embrace, as whether he should live upon his estate to employ its produce and alms, or should renounce it at once and embrace a monastic and eremitical life. Lanfranc, feeling an overbearing affection for so promising a disciple, durst not advise him in his vocation, fearing the bias of his own inclination. But he sent him to Marilius, the holy archbishop of Rouen. By him, Anselm, after he had laid open to him his interior, was determined to enter the monastic state at Beck, and accordingly became a member of that house at the age of 27 in 1060, under the abbot Herluin. Three years after, Lanfranc was made abbot of St. Stephen's at Cain, an Anselm prior of Beck.
Lanfranc was born in Pavia in Lombardy of a noble family about the year 1005, studied eloquence and the laws at Bologna, and was professor of laws in his native city. This charge he resigned in order to travel into Normandy, where he made his monastic profession at Beck under Herluin, the first abbot, about the year 1042. Henry I being king of France and William the Bastard, Duke of Normandy, three years after he was made prior and commenced a great school in that monastery which, by his extraordinary reputation, soon became the most famous at that time in Europe. Berengarius, professor at Tours and archdeacon of Angers, made great complaints against him because several had left his school to go to Beck. When that unhappy professor broached his errors concerning the Blessed Eucharist, Lanfranc invited him often to a conference, which Berengarius declined. He assisted at the Council of Reims in 1040, held by St. Leo IX, and intended that pope to Rome, and was present at the council there in which Berengarius was excommunicated and that of Vericelli. Duke William married his cousin Maud, daughter to Baldwin, Count of Flanders, without a dispensation. But Nicholas II afterwards granted one at the solicitation of Lanfranc, whom the duke sent to Rome on that errand. In that city he attended the council in which Berengarius soundly abjured his errors. After his relapse, he wrote against him, whether at Beck or at Cain is uncertain, his excellent book on the body of our Lord. The conditions which the Pope required in compensation for the dispensation for the Duke's marriage was that he and the Duchess should each found a monastery, the one for monks and the other for nuns. This they executed in the most magnificent manner in the abbeys of St. Stephen of the Holy Trinity at Cain in 1059, the buildings being finished in 1063. Lanfranc was appointed first abbot of the former, whither Pope Alexander II, who had been his scholar at Beck, sent some of his relations to study in the great school which he opened in this new abbey. Lanfranc had obstinately refused the Archbishopric of Rouen in 1067, but was compelled by the orders of two councils and Abbot Herluin to accept that of Canterbury in 1070. The Pope appointed him legate in England, and the Archbishop reformed the clergy, the monasteries, and the laity, and restored the studies both of the sacred sciences, eloquence, and grammar. He is allowed by all to have been the ablest dialectician and the most eloquent Latin writer of his age, nor was he less famous for his skill in the scriptures, fathers, and canon law. King William, as often as he went into Normandy, charged him with the chief care of the government in England, and by that prince's last disposition and his express order before his death, Lanfranc crowned his younger son, William Rufus, on the 29th of September, 1087. He survived two years his death, happening on the 28th of May, 1089 in the 19th year of his archiepiscopal dignity. He was buried in Christ Church at Canterbury. At Anselm's promotion, several of the monks murmured on account of his youth, but by patience and sweetness he won the affections of them all, and by little condescensions, at first so worked upon an irregular young monk called Osborne as to perfect his conversion and to make him one of the most fervent. He had indeed so great a knowledge of the hearts and passions of men that he seemed to read their interior in their actions, by which he discovered the sources of virtues and vices, and knew how to adapt to each proper advice and instructions, which were rendered most powerful by the mildness and charity with which he applied them. And in regard to the management and tutoring of youth, he looked upon excessive severity as highly pernicious. Aidmer has recorded a conversation he had on this subject with a neighboring abbot 
who by a conformity to our saint's practice and advice in this regard, experienced that success in his labors which he had till then aspired to in vain by harshness and severity. Saint Anselm applied himself diligently to the study of every part of theology by the clear light of scripture and tradition. While he was prior at Beck, he wrote his monologium, so called because of this work he speaks alone, explaining the metaphysical proofs of the existence and nature of God. Also, his proslogium, or contemplation of God's attributes, in which he addresses his discourse to God or himself. The meditations commonly called the Manual of St. Austin, and I should mention here that, and I've not mentioned before, St. Austin is another name for St. Augustine. These meditations are chiefly extracted out of this book. It was censured by a neighboring monk, which occasioned the saint's apology. These and other the like works show the author to have excelled in metaphysics all the doctors of the church since St. Austin. He likewise wrote while prior on truth, on free will, and on the fall of the devil, or on the origin of evil. Also, his grammarian, which is in reality a treatise on dialectics, or the art of reasoning. Anselm's reputation drew to Beck great numbers from all the neighboring kingdoms. Herluin dying in 1078, he was chosen abbot of Beck, being 45 years old, of which he had been prior 15. The abbacy of Beck being possessed at that time of some lands in England, this obliged the abbot to make his appearance there in person at certain times. This occasioned our saint's first journeys thither, which his tender regard for his old friend Lanfranc, at that time Archbishop of Canterbury, made the more agreeable. He was received with great honor and esteem by all ranks of people, both in church and state, and there was no one who did not think it a real misfortune if he had not been able to serve him in something or other. King William himself, whose title of conqueror rendered him haughty and inaccessible to his subjects, was so affable to the good abbot of Beck that he seemed to be another man in his presence. The saint on his side was all to all, by courtesy and charity, that he might find occasions of giving everyone some suitable instructions to promote their salvation, which were so much the more effectual, as he communicated them, not as some do, with the dictatorial air of a master, but in a simple, familiar manner, or by indirect, though sensible examples. In the year 1092, Hugh, the great Earl of Chester, by three pressing messages, entreated Anselm to come again into England, to assist him then dangerously sick, and to give his advice about the foundation of a monastery which that nobleman had undertaken at St. Wergberg's Church at Chester. A report that he would be made Archbishop of Canterbury in the room of Lanfranc, deceased, made him stand off for some time, but he could not forsake his old friend in his distress, and at last came over. He found him recovered, but the affairs of his own abbey, and of that which the earl was erecting, detained him five months in England. The Metropolitan See of Canterbury had been vacant ever since the death of Lanfranc in 1089. The sacrilegious and tyrannical king, William Rufus, who succeeded his father in 1087 by an injustice unknown till his time, usurped the revenues of vacant benefices and deferred his permission, or condelaire, in order to the filling of the episcopal sees that he might the longer enjoy their income. Having thus seized into his hands the revenues of the archbishopric, 
he reduced the monks of Canterbury to a scanty allowance, oppressing them moreover by his officers with continual insults, threats, and vexations. He had been much solicited by the most virtuous among the nobility to supply the see of Canterbury, in particular with a person proper for that station, but continued deaf to all their remonstrances and answered them at Christmas 1093 that neither Anselm nor any other should have that bishopric while he lived. And this he swore to by the holy face of Luca, meaning a great crucifix in the cathedral of that city, held in singular veneration his usual oath. He was seized soon after with a violent fit of sickness, which in a few days brought him to extremity. He was then at Gloucester, and seeing himself in this condition, signed a proclamation which was published to release all those that had been taken prisoners in the field, to discharge all debts owing to the crown, and to grant a general pardon, promising likewise to govern according to law and to punish the instruments of injustice with exemplary severity. He moreover nominated Anselm to the See of Canterbury, at which all were extremely satisfied with the good abbot himself, who made all the decent opposition imaginable, alleging his age, his want of health and vigor enough for so weighty a charge, his unfitness for the man management of public and secular affairs, which he had always declined to the best of his power. The king was extremely concerned at his opposition and asked him why he endeavored to ruin him in the other world, being convinced that he should lose his soul in case he died before the archbishopric was filled. The king was seconded by the bishops and others present, who not only told him that they were scandalized at his refusal, but added that, if he persisted in it, all the grievances of the church and nation would be placed to his account. Thereupon they forced a pastoral staff into his hands in the king's presence, carried him into the church, and sung Te Deum on the occasion. This was on the 6th of March, 1093. He still declined the charge till the king had promised him the restitution of all the lands that were in the possession of that see in Lanfranc's time. Anselm also insisted that he should acknowledge Urban II for lawful pope. Things being thus adjusted, Anselm was consecrated with great solemnity on the 4th of December, 1093. Anselm had not been long in possession of the See of Canterbury when the king, intending to wrest the Duchy of Normandy out of the hands of his brother Robert, made large demands on his subjects for supplies. On this occasion, not content with the 500 pounds, a very large sum in those days, offered him by the archbishop, the king insisted, at the instigation of some of his courtiers, on a thousand for his nomination to the archbishopric, which Anselm constantly refused to pay, pressing him also to fill vacant abbeys and to consent that the bishops should hold councils as formerly and be allowed by canons to repress crimes and abuses which were multiplied and passed into custom for want of such remedy, especially incestuous marriages and other abominable debaucheries. The king was extremely provoked and declared no one should extort from him his abbeys any more than his crown. He did not think himself a complete monarch, as Edmer says, unless he melted the mitre into the crown and engrossed the possession of all his jurisdictions, both spiritual and temporal. And from that day, he sought to deprive Anselm of his see. William, Bishop of Durham, and the other prelates acquiesced readily in the king's orders, by which he forbade them to obey him as their primate, or treat him as archbishop, alleging for reason that he obeyed Pope Urban during the schism whom the English nation had not acknowledged. The king, having brought over most of the bishops to his measures, applied to the temporal nobility and bid them disclaim the archbishop, 
but they resolutely answered that since he was their archbishop and had a right to superintend the affairs of religion, it was not in their power to disengage themselves from his authority, especially as there was no crime or misdemeanor proved against him. William then, by his ambassador, acknowledged Urban for true pope and promised him a yearly pension from England if he would depose Anselm. But the legate, whom his holiness sent, told the king that it was what could not be done. St. Anselm wrote to the pope to thank him for the pall he had sent him by that legate, complaining of the affliction in which he lived under, a burden too heavy for him to bear, and regretting the tranquility of his solitude, which he had lost. Finding the king always seeking occasions to oppress his church unless he fed him with its treasures, which he regarded as the patrimony of the poor, though he readily furnished his contingent in money and troops to his exp expeditions into all public burdens. The holy, holy prelate earnestly desired to leave England that he might apply in person to the Pope for his counsel and assistance. The king refused him twice, and on his applying to him a third time, he assured the saint that, if he left that kingdom, he would seize upon the whole revenue of the See of Canterbury, and that he should never more be acknowledged the Metropolitan. But the saint, being persuaded, he could not in conscience abide any longer in the realm to be a witness of the oppression of the church, and not have it in his power to remedy it, set out from Canterbury in October 1097, in the habit of a pilgrim, took shipping at Dover, and landed at Whitson, having with him two monks, Aidmer, who wrote his life in Baldwin. He made some stay at Cluny with St. Hugh, the abbot, and at Lyons with the good Archbishop Hugh. It not being safe traveling any further towards Rome at that time on account of the anti-pope's party lying in the way, and Anselm falling sick soon after, this made it necessary for him to stay longer at Lyons than he had designed. However, he left that city the march following in 1098 on the Pope's invitation and was honorably received by him. His Holiness, having heard his cause, assured him of his protection and wrote to the King of England for his reestablishment in his rights and possessions. Anselm also wrote to the King at the same time and after ten days' stay in the Pope's palace, retired to the monastery of St. Saviour in, in Calabria, the heir of Rome not agreeing with his health. Here he finished his work, entitled Why God Was Made Man, in two books, showing against infidels the wisdom, justice, and expediency of the mystery of the Incarnation for man's redemption. He had begun this work in England, where he also wrote his book on the faith of the Trinity and Incarnation, dedicated to Pope Urban II, in which he refuted Roscalin, the master Peter Abelard, who maintained an erroneous opinion in regard to the Trinity. Anselm, charmed with the sweets of his retirement, and despairing of doing any good at Canterbury, hearing by new instances that the king was still governed by his passions, and open defiance of, to justice and religion, earnestly entreated the pope, whom he met at Aversa, to discharge him of his bishopric, believing he might be more serviceable to the world in a private station. The Pope would by no means consent, but charged him upon his obedience not to quit his station, adding that it was not the part of a man of piety and courage to be frightened from his post purely by the dint of browbeating and threats, that being all the harm he had hitherto received. Anselm replied that he was not afraid of suffering or even losing his life in the cause of God, but that he saw there was nothing to be done in a country where justice was so overruled as it was in England. However, Anselm submitted, 
and in the meantime returned to his retirement, which was called which was a cell called Slavia, situated on the mountain, depending on the monastery of St. Savior. That he might live in the merit of obedience, he prevailed with the Pope to appoint the monk Aidmer, his inseparable companion, to be his superior, nor did he do the least thing without his leave. The Pope, having called a council, which was to meet at Bari in October 1098, in order to effect a reconciliation of the Greeks with the Catholic Church, ordered the saint to be present at it. It consisted of 123 bishops, the Greeks having proposed the question about the procession of the Holy Ghost, whether this was from the Father only or from the Father and the Son. The disputation being protracted, the Pope called aloud for Anselm, saying, Anselm, our Father and our Master, where are you? And causing him to sit next to him, told him that the present occasion required his learning and elocution to defend the church against her enemies, and that he thought God had brought him thither for that purpose. Anselm spoke to the point with so much learning, judgment, and penetration that he silenced the Greeks, and gave such a general satisfaction that all present joined in pronouncing anathema against those that should afterwards deny the procession of the Holy Ghost from both the Father and the Son. This affair being at an end, the proceedings of the King of England fell next under debate, and on this occasion his simony, his oppressions of the church, his persecution of Anselm, and his incorrigibleness after frequent admonitions were so strongly represented that the Pope, at the instance of the council, was just going to pronounce him excommunicated. Anselm had hitherto sat silent, but at this he rose up, and casting himself on his knees before the Pope, entreated him to stop the censure. And now the council, who had admired our saint for his parts and learning, were further charmed with him on account of his humane and Christian disposition in behalf of the one that had used him so roughly. The saint's petition in behalf of his sovereign was granted, and on the council breaking up, the Pope and Anselm returned to Rome. The Pope, however, sent to the king a threat of excommunication to be issued in a council to be shortly after held at Rome unless he made satisfaction. But the king by his ambassador obtained a long delay. Anselm stayed some time at Rome with the Pope, who always placed him next in rank to himself. All persons, even the schismatics, loved and honored him, and he assisted with distinction at the Council of Rome, held after Easter in 1099. Immediately after the Roman Council, he returned to Lyons, where he was entertained by the Archbishop Hugh, with all the cordiality and regard imaginable. But he saw no hopes of recovering his see so long as King William lived. Here he wrote his book, on the conception of the Virgin, and on original sin, resolving many questions relating to that sin. The Archbishop of Lyons gave him in all functions the precedence, and all thought themselves happy who could receive any sacrament from his hands. Upon the death of Urban II, he wrote an account of his case to his successor, Pascal II, King William Rufus being snatched away by sudden death without the sacraments on the 2nd of August, 1100. St. Anselm, who was then in the abbey of Chaise-Dieu in Auvergne, lamented bitterly his unhappy end and made haste to England, whither he was invited by King Henry I. He landed at Dover on the 23rd of September and was received with great joy and extraordinary respect. And having in a few days recovered the fatigue of his journey, he went to wait on the king, who received him very graciously. But this harmony was of no long continuance. The new king required of Anselm to be reinvested by him, 
and do the customary homage of his predecessors for his see. But the saint absolutely refused to comply and made a report of the proceedings of the late synod at Rome in which the laity that gave investitures for abbeys or cathedrals were excommunicated, and those that received such investitures were put under the same censure. But this not satisfying the king, it was agreed between them to consult the pope upon the subject. The court, in the meantime, was very much alarmed at the preparations making by the king's elder brother Robert, Duke of Normandy, who, being returned from the Holy War in Palestine, claimed the crown of England and threatened to invade the land. The nobles, though they had sworn allegiance to Henry, were ready to enough to join him, and on his landing with a formidable army at Portsmouth, several declared for the duke. The king, being in great danger and of losing his crown, was very liberal in promises to Anselm on this occasion, assuring them that he would henceforth leave the business of religion wholly to him, and be always governed by the advice and orders of the apostolic see. Anselm omitted nothing on his side to prevent a revolt from the king. Not content with sending his quota of armed men, he strongly represented to the disaffected nobles the heinousness of their crime of perjury, and that they ought rather lose their lives than break through their oaths, and fail in their sworn allegiance to their prince. He also published an excommunication against Robert as an invader, who thereupon came to an accommodation with Henry and left England. And thus, as Aidmer relates, the archbishop strengthening the king's party kept the crown upon his head. Amidst his troubles and public distractions, he retired often in the day to his devotions and watched long in them in the night. At his meals and at all times, he conversed interiorly in heaven. One day, as he was riding to his manor of hearse, a hare pursued by the dogs ran under his horse for refuge, at which the saint stopped and the hound stood at bay. The hunters laughed, but the saint said, weeping, This hare puts me in mind of a poor sinner just upon the point of departing this life, surrounded with devils, waiting to carry away their prey. The hare going off, he forbade her to be pursued and was obeyed, not a hound stirring after her. In like manner, every object served to raise his mind to God, with whom he always conversed in his heart, and in the midst of noise and tumult, he enjoyed the tranquility of holy contemplation. So strongly was his soul sequestered from and raised above the world. King Henry, though so much indebted to Anselm, still persisted in his claim of the right of giving the investitures of benefices. Anselm, in 1102, held a national council in St. Peter's Church at Westminster, in which, among other things, it was forbid to sell men like cattle, which had till then been practiced in England. And many canons relating to discipline were drawn up. He persisted to refuse to ordain bishops named by the king without a canonical election. The contest became every day more serious. At last, the king and nobles persuaded Anselm to go in person and consult the pope about the matter. The king also sent a deputy to his holiness. The saint embarked on the 27th of April in 1103. Pope Paschal II condemned the king's pretensions to the investitures and excommunicated those who should receive church dignities from him. St. Anselm, being advanced on his return to England as far as Lyons, received there an intimation of an order from King Henry forbidding him to proceed on his journey home unless he would conform to his will. He therefore remained at Lyons, where he was much honored by his old friend, the Archbishop Hugh. From thence he retired to his abbey of Beck, 
where he received from the Pope a commission to judge the cause of the Archbishop of Rouen, accused of several crimes. He was also allowed to receive into communion such as had accepted investitures from the crown, which though still disallowed of, the bishops and abbots were so far dispensed with as to do homage for their temporalities. The king was so pleased with this condescension of the Pope that he sent immediately to Beck to invite St. Anselm home in the most obliging manner, but a grievous sickness detained him. The king coming over into Normandy in 1106, articles of agreement were drawn up between him and the archbishop at Beck, pursuant to the letter St. Anselm had received from Rome a few months before, and the pope very readily confirmed their agreement. In this expedition, Henry defeated his brother Robert and sent him prisoner into England, where he died. St. Anselm hereupon returned to England in 1106 and was received by the Queen Maud, who came to meet him and by the whole kingdom of England, as it were, in triumph. His exterior occupations did not hinder him from continuing to employ his pen in defense of the church. Towards the end of his life, he wrote a book on the will, showing its different acceptations, also his learned treatise on the concord of divine foreknowledge, predestination, and grace with free will, and a tract on azymes against the Greeks, another on the difference of the sacraments, fees in the Latin and Greek ceremonies, and a work on the prohibited marriages of relations. His epistles are divided into four books. The first contain those which he wrote before he was abbot, the second those while he was abbot, the third and fourth those he wrote while archbishop. The elucidarium of theology is unworthy his name, though it has sometimes passed under it by mistake, as have the discourse on the conception of the Blessed Virgin and the commentaries on St. Paul's epistles by Herveus, a Benedictine prior of Bourg, Dieu, and Berry. The poem on the contempt of the world is the work of Roger of Cain, monk of Beck, while St. Anselm was prior, as Mambalon shows. The treatise on the excellence of the Blessed Virgin was written by Edmer, the disciple of our saint, who died prior at Canterbury in 1137. St. Anselm, in his dogmatical writings, sticks close to the fathers, especially to St. Austin. He gathers the doctrine of the points he treats of into a regular system, in a clear method, and a chain of close reasoning, the method which St. John Damascene had followed among the Greeks in his books on the Orthodox faith, in which among the Latins Peter Lombard, Bishop of Paris, from his Abridgment of Divinity, which was called his Four Books of Sentences, surnamed the Master of the Sentences, and all the schoolmen have followed ever since, whence St. Anselm is regarded as the first of the scholastic theologians, as St. Bernard closes the list of the fathers of the church. Only public occasions engaged St. Anselm in this literary career for the defense of the church. It was rather his delight to be employed in the interior exercises of devotion, being himself one of the most eminent masters in the contemplative way, of which spirit his ascetic works will be an eternal monument. They consist of exhortations, prayers, hymns, and meditations to be best read in the new edition of his works by the Benedictines. They are written with a moving unction and express a most tender devotion, especially to the cross and passion of Christ, to the holy sacrament of the altar, and to the Blessed Virgin, in an ardent love of God and of our divine Redeemer. Aidmer, his disciple and constant companion, who has given us his life in two books, and a separate book of new transactions, chiefly containing the saints' public actions and troubles, 
has also left us the book of his similitudes collected from his maxims and sentences. He informs us that the saint used to say that if he saw hell open and sin before him, he would leap into the former to avoid the latter. Such indeed are to be the dispositions of every good Christian, but only an extraordinary impulse of fervor like the saints can make such metaphysical suppositions seasonable. The same author relates a vision seen by the saint representing the world like a fetid torrent, the persons drowned in which seemed carried down by its impetuous stream. The last years of St. Anselm's life, his health was entirely broken. Having for six months labored under a hectic decay with an entire loss of appetite, under which disorder he would be carried every day to assist at Holy Mass, he happily expired, laid on sackcloth and ashes at Canterbury on the 21st of April, 1109, in the 16th year of his Episcopal dignity, and of his age, the 76th. He was buried in his cathedral. By a decree of Clement the 11th, 1720, he is honored among the doctors of the church. We have authentic accounts of many miracles wrought by this saint in the histories of Edmer and others. St. Anselm had the most lively faith of all the mysteries and great truths of our holy religion, and by the purity of his heart and an interior divine light, he discovered great secrets in the holy scriptures and had a wonderful talent in explaining difficulties which occur in them. His hope for heavenly things gave him a wonderful contempt and disgust of the vanities of the world, and he could truly say with the apostle, he was crucified to the world and all its desires. By habitual mortification of his appetite in eating and drinking, he seemed to have lost all relish in the nourishment which he took. His fortitude was such that no human respects or other considerations could ever turn him out of the way of justice and truth, and his charity for his neighbor seemed confined by no bounds. His words, his writings, his whole life breathed forth this heavenly fire. He seemed to live, says his faithful disciple and historian, not for himself, but for others, or rather so much the more for himself by how much the more profitable his life was to his neighbors and faithful to his God. The divine love and law were the continual subjects of his meditations day and night. He had a singular devotion to the passion of our Lord and to his virgin mother, her image at Beck, before which at her altar he ma daily made long prayers while he lived in that monastery, is religiously kept in the new sumptuous church. His horror of the least sin is not to be expressed. In his proslogium meditations and other ascetic works, the most heroic and inflamed sentiments of all these virtues, especially of compunction, fear of the divine judgments, and charity are expressed in the language of the heart, which is peculiar to the saints. Sancta Anselme, ora pro nobis, in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen.